Alrighty, I invite you to, to grab a Bible, grab your phone, grab your iPad, whatever you use, and, and turn to Jonah chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible or anything like that, the passage of Scripture is in your bulletin as well as on the screen. So Jonah is toward the end of the Old Testament. It's page 1,167 in my Bible. I meant to look it up in the red one. Sorry about that. So probably somewhere in the thousands. So if you get to Matthew, you need to go left, right? It's like you're going a little too far. Obadiah, if you get to Obadiah, it's the very uh, next book. So we call this a minor prophet, not because the message in this book is minor. <laughs> it's because of the content. And so, you know, it's, it's a shorter uh, book. That's what we call minor prophets compared to the major prophets, which would be like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, whose content is way uh, bigger. So uh, I love this book. I don't know if you've ever read it. I encourage you to. If you've never read it, you're in for a treat because there's a whole lot of surprises in these four chapters. And then the writer wants you to be surprised and shocked. And I'm going to try my best to kind of pull out the surprises uh, and the shocks. And so I know that, you know, some argue that this book is a kind of a fair fable, kind of a sort of a, a parable. It wasn't an actual story that happened in history. And, and so I'm not going to spend the time kind of arguing and, and giving you the points of what I, what I believe about this. This is where it is for me. And I said this last week in one of the services. This is where it kind of seals the deal for me. All right. So Jesus, who predicted his death and resurrection and pulled it off, that's a pretty big deal. And he believed that this was an historical real account, that this was not a parable. This was not a made up story. And so if Jesus, who predicted his death and resurrection and pulled it off, believes this was a historical account, guess what? I'm in, all right? I'm siding with Jesus. And so I, I do believe this really did happen in history and primarily because that's what Jesus says. And he compares himself uh, to Jonah in the New Testament. So yeah, there you go. There's my 30-second apologetic of why I believe Jonah is a real, true account, all right? So if you need more than that, I'm not sure if I'm going to give it to you. Amen? So, <laughs> I love you, but I don't know if I'm going to give you any more than that. So let's stand together in honor of reading God's Word. So we're going to read all of chapter 1. That's too long. And if you sit down, that's cool. You can sit down. Don't want anybody passing out. So hear the Word of the Lord. So the Word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of, and we'll just say A. Amen? Here we go. Verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. And all of the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below the deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up! Call on your God! Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. And then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. And surprise, they cast the lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Dun, 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 right? It's like, yep, there you go. Verse 8, so they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making this trouble for us. What, what do you do? Where do you come from? What, what is your country? From what people are you? 
And he answered them, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. And this terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them this. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, and so they asked him, what should we do to to make the sea calm again for us? And Jonah said, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for making this man, taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. And they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. And at this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I I pray that you would just help us as we work through this book over the next few weeks here, God. Lord, my prayer for us and my prayer for myself is that you would Show us ways that we have kind of wrong ideas about you, God. And the Lord, you would continue to reshape and reframe our thinking about who you are and how you act toward humanity. Lord, we pray that you would just um, help us to be open-handed, that you would help us to come with a posture of learning from you, that we would be able to see ourselves rightly so that we can receive the message of this little book called Jonah. And most importantly, Lord, May you warm our hearts. May we see Jesus in these four chapters. And as we see Jesus, God, may it deepen our love and our affections for him. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So here's all I want to do this morning. I want to unpack two big truths that are in this chapter. And I think these truths are kind of interwoven all throughout this chapter. It's not like, you know, truth number one and these these few verses and truth number two, these few verses. It's all in there. And so what I want to do is I want to kind of unpack these by walking through the story and truth number one and then kind of going back to the story and highlighting where truth number two is. So truth number one is this. We all run. We all run. And so maybe that's a little too uh, abrasive, right, at 9.30 in the morning, okay? And so maybe you're not ready for that. And so we'll just keep it kind of outside ourselves, right? If you can't handle we all run, I'll get to why I think we all run here in a minute. But if that's too abrasive, because I don't want you to shut down right now, just, just believe that Jonah runs, all right? That's, we see that in the text. Just kind of keep it outside of you. And you'll go, Jonah, he runs, all right? That's what you need to hear. Eventually, I'm going to hopefully convince you that we all Run. That's first truth. Second truth is this, and this is where the good news is, is that God always pursues. God always chases. Yes, Jonah's sin is great, but God's grace is much greater. And I know I kind of gave too little emphasis there, much greater, kind of in English it may cancel it out, but it doesn't matter to me, right? Much greater. His grace far exceeds any sin that we can do. 
So let's jump in here. All right, let's dive in. No, no pun intended. So first one is this, is that all of us run. So look what happens here. Verse one, the, Lord, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, the son of A, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come before me. Now I'm not gonna spend a whole lot of time describing Nineveh because we'll get there in chapter four, but just briefly here, Nineveh is the, the kind of the capital of Assyria, which is a, a large nation, a very powerful nation in this time that threatened the security and the identity of the nation of Israel, which is where Jonah is at this time. And so Nineveh is an enormously wicked, barbaric, evil city, and Jonah and the Jews hate them. They hate this group of people, and they pray for God's judgment upon this group of people. It would be similar to God coming to you in the 1940s and telling you during the, the heat of World War II to go to Berlin and preach against the Nazis. And Jonah understands, I'll come to this, Jonah understands this, that the reason why he's going to preach to Nineveh is so that Nineveh will have an opportunity to repent. God doesn't want to destroy Nineveh. And the reason why he's sending Jonah is so that they can hear the good news and receive it and repent. And Jonah knows the heart of God and he doesn't want any of that. That's why we read in the very next phrase, but Jonah ran away from the Lord. And so here's the kind of the shock that we need to feel here that sometimes we don't get. And it's part of the reason why is we're not familiar with the minor prophets. So here's a couple things here. Number one, this is the first time where the prophet is being sent. Normally the prophet stays in the homeland and speaks to God's people in the homeland. This one here is Jonah is now being sent. Normally when a prophet gets a word from the Lord, what do they do? They do what the word of the Lord says. Here, Jonah runs. And let me just give you a little sample here. So if we just start with the beginning of the Minor Prophets, which is in Hosea, I just wanna kinda help you feel the shock when you roll into Jonah here when it says he ran. So Hosea starts out like this, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, and I'm not gonna read all that. Verse two, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go take for yourself an adulterous wife. And what happened? So he married. God said, I did it. You go to the next book. Joel, it says this in chapter one, the word of the Lord came to Joel, son of Pethuel. And what happens there in verse two? Hear this, the word of the Lord comes to Joel. Joel goes to the people of God and says, listen to me. Hear what God says. God gives the word, Joel does it. Amos one, same thing. The word of the Lord comes to Amos and guess what he does? He goes and speaks the word of the Lord, he obeys. Obadiah, the vision of Obadiah, this is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. So over and over in the beginning of these minor prophets, the word of the Lord comes to these minor prophets and they do what God says to do. And then you hear Jonah. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, go preach against Nineveh, and he runs. That is not what you expect out of a prophet of God. It is shocking. Like when they are reading this for the very first time, this is shocking to them. He runs. And so what, what you see the narrator do in the rest of this chapter here is he's trying to help us see this, this kind of spiral downward that's happening in the heart of Jonah. He's trying to help you see 
the deep rebellion that is going on in the heart of Jonah. This is not just like a, ah, I'm a little, little concerned, so I'm jogging. No, this is a, a sprint, and I know this may sound kind of crude, but this is basically Jonah giving the finger to God. That's how deep and wicked this is. And the narrator here in chapter one is trying to help us see this is a big deal. And I want to highlight four places that we see this kind of downward spiral of how the narrator is trying to show us this deep rebellion that Jonah is in, in, in against God. The first one is Tarshish. So he runs away and he goes to Tarshish. Why does he go to Tarshish? Tarshish is in the very opposite direction of Nineveh. It's, it's probably close to 2,500 miles away. It would be like God coming to you and say, hey, I want you to go to Boston and plant a church. And you say, nope, not gonna do it. And you go to Texas. I don't know if I would go to Texas. That's dry and nasty. Maybe some Colorado, there you go. It's a little better there, right? But he goes in the very opposite direction. That's one. The second one is the repetition that the narrator uses with the word down. And we don't see this in our NIV, and maybe you might see it in another translation, but the reason why we don't see it in our English translation is because we don't like to repeat words. We feel like that's bad English, so you don't repeat words. You kind of figure out a different way to say it. But in the original language, this, this word down is used over and over, and what the narrator is trying to do for us is give us a picture of what I said, this downward spiral of rebellion that's going on in the heart of Jonah. We see it in verse 3. Look what he says here. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for the, that port. After paying the fare, he went, and the word there is down to get aboard the ship. He gets on the ship, verse five, we understand where Jonah is, so the big waves, craziness. And you gotta remember, these are, these are like seasoned sailors. So this is a massive storm, they're freaking out. Craziness going on, but where's Jonah, verse five? But Jonah had gone where? Down. The lowest part of the ship. So Jonah is trying to flee from the very felt presence of God. And the natural response to that is, I'm going to go as far below, as low as I possibly and physically get, so I can flee from the presence of God. It's a picture for us to see the heart of Jonah and this deep rebellion against God here. So not only we got Tarshish, not only we got this repetition of down, but also the third place we see this is the sailors. And what the, what the writer is trying to do here is he's trying to contrast the behavior of the sailors to that of Jonah. These godless, non-believing, pagan sailors act more like a Christian than Jonah does. And it's on purpose. He wants you to see that this is how the prophet of God should be acting, but actually these sailors are acting like that. So where do you see this lot? Well, first of all, in verse 9, when he kind of explains to them what's going on, look what happens. Listen to their response. Listen to how the sailors, these people that are Gentiles, don't believe in God, have no relationship with him at all. Look how they respond. Verse 9, Jonah answers, this is who I am. I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the seas and the land. Verse 10, this terrified them. Fear gripped them. Jonah gets a direct word from the Lord and he runs. Jonah gets a direct word from the Lord and there is no fear in Jonah whatsoever. These 
sailors who are far from God hear about who God is and terror comes upon them. Another place we see this contrast is their concern for Jonah, right? So we get in verse 12, the, you know, before that, the, the storm's going crazy. They, they cast lots and it lands on Jonah and they go, okay, what do we need to do to calm the storm down? If you're the reason why this is happening to us, what do we need to do? Look at verse 12. Jonah says this, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. In verse 13, instead, instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. The sailors show more concern and mercy for Jonah, even though he's the cause of the calamity that's coming upon them. Jonah shows no concern whatsoever for the captain or this people when he steps on the ship. And once they find out it's Jonah's fault, these sailors who are far from God show more mercy and concern for him than what Jonah does for Nineveh. What you would expect from the prophet of God is being put on display in these sailors. Crazy. The last one here. So he goes to Tarshish, runs hard way, opposite direction. This downward spower, the sailors being contrasted to his behavior. And the last one we see here to kind of show us how dark Jonah's getting, how bad it really is, and the rebellion that's going on in his heart, is when he says, throw me overboard. And he says in verse 12, this is how the storm gets calm. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Now, some of us may think that's God, that's Jonah kind of conceding. That's Jonah kind of like giving up. That's Jonah surrendering. That's, that's Jonah kind of giving a posture sort of, of repentance and confession. No, it's not. I, I would argue this is sort of the climax of the depth of rebellion that's going on in Jonah because this is what he's saying. I would rather die than obey God's word and go preach to Nineveh. Throw me overboard. Look, Look, he's not gotten some special vision from God to say, hey, I'm gonna write a book about you. It's gonna be awesome. All the VBSs are gonna have all these flannel boards. They're gonna have big whales and fish. The kids are gonna love this story. Promise you, man, I, it's all gonna work out. So just let them throw you overboard. I know that's kind of crazy, but a fish is coming. It's gonna swallow. No, he has no idea. There's no Coast Guard in this time, right? There's no like, SOS, a man overboard, can you send a copter, right? No, Jonah knows exactly what he's doing here by telling him to throw him overboard. I would rather die. I would rather die than do what God says. There's no posture of, I'm sorry. There's no posture of, ah, you win. No, this is sort of the climax of his rebellion. I would rather die than do what God says. It's interesting. This is the only prophetic book in the Bible that focuses on the prophet and not the prophet's message. You follow me? This is the only prophetic book in the Bible that focuses on the prophet and not the prophet's message. So why? Why is that? Why is 
this book focused on the prophet and not the prophet's message is because Jonah's life is God's message to his people. Jonah's life is God's message to his people. And that message is this, is that we are all like Jonah. Jonah's posture is our postures. We all run when the word of God comes to us, specifically when it comes to something in our lives that we're holding tight to. I hate the people of Nineveh. I don't want to preach mercy to them. I want judgment on them. Then God's word comes to Jonah, speaks to that in his own heart, and his natural response to that is not open hands. It's not, okay, I got it. You're right. I'm wrong. No, his natural response to that is, nope, I'm out of here. And all of us, if we're just honest for a few minutes, would say we're just like Jonah. Whenever God's word comes to us and speaks to us in an area where we're holding tight to, our natural response is not, I got it, yes, you're right, I'm so sorry, open it. No, our natural response is we want to run. If you have a spouse in here or if you have friends in here that are close to you, when they come and confront you with something that is obvious to them and it's sinful, what is your natural response? Maybe I'm the only one. My natural response is like, nope, that ain't me. Let me show you all what's wrong with you, right? You're giving me stuff? Okay, hang on. I got a list. Boom, let's go at it. That's what we do with our spouses and our friends who truly love us. Then listen to me, we do it to God. Sin, in essence, is running the Lord. So every time, every time that we sin, whether it's small things or big things, whether it's in word or deed or in thought, we're basically saying this, my way, my way is so much better than your way. My wisdom, my skill is so much more efficient and effective than your wisdom and your skill. In essence, we don't stop believing, right? Jonah didn't stop believing in God in the midst of his rebellion. He stands up and makes a, a great declaration of who God is. He's the one that's controlling all this. But what we believe, right, shifts. And that what is that I, I know better. G.K. Chesterton, older theologian, says this. I don't think it's on the screen. I think I forgot to put this in the slides. When we sin, that something which we choose to believe in is not no God, but ourselves as God. I'll say it again. When we sin, that something which we choose to believe in is not no God, but ourselves as God. Because listen to me. This is step one to Christianity. If you don't take this step, Christianity makes absolutely no sense to you whatsoever. And I would say you would miss the entire message of Jonah and your hearts will not be warmed by what you see in these four chapters. Because the first step is you've got to come to a place where you recognize I'm a fugitive, I'm a runner. Whenever I hear God's word, when it comes to me and pricks something in my own heart that I'm holding tight to, my natural 
inclination and response is to do what Jonah does. I run and I run hard. My posture is Jonah's posture. If you don't take that step, then this book will not be sweet to you. We all run. Second truth. So then how does God respond to Jonah? What is, what is his posture toward him? How does he treat Jonah? God always, always pursues. And so this is, this is the surprise. This is the shock here. This is the, the one book that I would say kind of blows the, to pieces this idea that there are two different postures of God. So in, there's, in the Old Testament, there's this posture of God of anger, wants to you know, throw down wrath and blow everybody up. And then there's this other posture of God in the New Testament where he's gracious, he's patient, he's long-suffering, he's kind. And I just want to say all that is blown out of the water when you look at Jonah. The reason, and we'll get to this more in chapter four, and I said this earlier, the reason why Jonah runs is because he knows the heart of God and the heart of God is full of patience and he wants to give mercy. He knows that if he goes and preaches to Nineveh, that Nineveh will repent. And when they repent, God will show mercy. He will show kindness. That's why he runs in the opposite direction. Look, this book is full, full of God's gracious, relentless love in the pursuit of rebels like you and I. I mean, it's, it's full of it. So this idea that God is angry in the Old Testament and he's kind in the New Testament is not true. His heart is full of love. His heart is full of patience. He wants to extend grace and mercy to people like you and me who are in full rebellion and running far from the Lord. And you see this all throughout the chapter, and I want to highlight four. And here they are. The first one is this. You see God's grace and his pursuit of Jonah by sending the word. Not just by sending the fish. We'll get there, all right? That's where most of us go. Well, here's the grace of God. He sends a fish. No, no. He first sends the word. And I would say the word isn't just for Nineveh. The word is also for Jonah. You follow me? The word of God that he's sending to Jonah is not just for Nineveh. It's also for Jonah because God knows his prophet. He knows what's deep in his heart. And he knows there needs to be a deep work of repentance that happens in Jonah. And so God sending his word to Jonah is a grace not only for Nineveh, but also a grace for Jonah. So like, make the leap, man. Every time we gather together every Sunday and we read scripture, we sing scripture, we stand up and read the word of God, that is God's grace over you. That is God's grace speaking to you. He is bringing his word to account in your heart and life. God sends his word. The second way we see God's grace in this chapter is he lets Jonah run. He doesn't let Jonah run because he doesn't have anybody else. He's like, oh, darn it, I wasn't planning on Jonah running. Here I gotta get my track shoes on and go after this guy, right? He's my only man. He's the only guy I can kind of carry the word to the Ninevites. Now, what Jonah deserved was judgment immediately. He disobeyed a divine command. And what he deserved in that moment was death. But God is kind, he's gracious, he's long-suffering. He lets him run. He let you run. He let Lyle run. 
Thirdly, God sends a storm, right? I mean, it's very clear that God's in control of this whole entire ordeal that's going on in chapter one. As we kind of dive in this book, that's one of the biggest things you see is that God's in control of all things that's happening. And whether we see it, acknowledge it, or realize it, no, he's the one that's sending the storm, and he's the one that sends this great storm here. And look, guys, it's not punishment. God's not sending the storm in order to punish Jonah for disobedience. No, the storm is being sent to pursue after Jonah. The storm is a gracious, kind act of God, and it shows us that God will spare nothing, no expense whatsoever to go after us. He will make our lives miserable, right? He will make our lives miserable so that we will turn back to him. And that's not payback. That's not punishment. That's not God's anger being poured out on Jonah. No, that's his pursuit, his relentless, kind, gracious pursuit, even if the grace of God seems severe in the moment. It is his kind pursuit of you. So not only does he send him the word, not only does he let Jonah run, not only does he send the storm, but then we get the kind of thing that we know about the story. God sends a great fish. And I just want to read this because it's beautiful. Verse 17, after he throws him overboard, the people do. This is what happens. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Once you see this, there's no posture in Jonah of repentance. None. There's no posture in Jonah of, I'm sorry, I made a huge mistake. Jonah asked him to throw him into the sea because I would rather die than do what God says. And instead of him paying for his own rebellion to some extent, God sends a great fish. The kindness, graciousness of God as he sends a great fish. This massive mercy put on display sends this great fish to keep him from drowning and dying. All of those, those four things, all of them, undeserved. Undeserved mercy, undeserved kindness, undeserved grace. So guys, look, if sin is running away from the Lord, then grace is God chasing after us. If sin is ultimately running away from the Lord, then grace is... It's God's fierce love. It's his determined love. It's his never giving up love. It's his will not to stop chasing after us until it hurts just enough to wake you and me up. We all run, but God always, always pursues. Now, some of you here might be going, okay, well, how do we know that this is true of God in the sense of what if, what if this is just kind of like one, a one-time deal, right? It's like a little hiccup in God's nature. He's like, all right, I'm going to be kind to Jonah. Like, how do we know this is true of God that, and how he treats us? I mean, you're making a big statement there. Why would you say we all run and then God chases after us and pursues us? Maybe, how do we not know that this is just a one-time thing that Jonah got to experience? How can I know for certainty that this is the nature of and character of God. Well, I'll give you the Sunday school answer. We know it with certainty is because of Jesus. Jesus. 
Jesus is kind of like God's megaphone put on display for all the world of how he goes and pursues and chases after rebellious people like you and me. He's the one that, that incarnated, took on flesh. Why? So we can go after rebellious people. We just read it earlier. Why we were still what? Sinners. Say it out loud. Why we were still, translation, while we were running away. While we were saying, shove off, God. I know better. I got this. I'm going to be my own God. I'm, I, I'm working this. My wisdom, my wit, my ideas are much better than you. In that moment, what did he do? He sent his son. There was no posture of humanity going, please, God, help us, help us. No, the posture is stay away from me, God. Stay away from us, God. But God, in his kindness, his graciousness, his overwhelming, wonderful, crazy love that he has for rebellious people like you and me that we see put on display here in Jonah is, is like a big old megaphone to the world when he sends Jesus on the scene. That's how I'm going to prove my love and how I prove that I'm chasing after you. I mean, Paul says this in Romans 8, verse 32. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Elliot just said Psalm 23, and in that Psalm 23, the goodness and mercy of God follows us. And it's a stronger word than that. It pursues us. It chases after us all the days of our life. And there's no conditions there, right? It's not, well, you know, as long as you're a good little boy and girl, right? David's the author of Psalm 23. You don't know David's story, just go read 2 Samuel. It's jacked up, right? And you go to Luke chapter 15 and and you see these three parables that, that Luke puts in there, and the heart of that is for us to see the heart of the Father. You got the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. And the reason why all three of those are there is kind of like he's wanting to make an explanation point. I want you to see the heart of the Father, and the heart of the Father is that I go after. I go after you. I chase after you. He leaves 99 sheep. And, and our rational thing is like, that's dumb. Right? Leave the stupid boneheaded one out to the animals. You've got 99. If you leave the 99, you're putting them in danger, aren't you? It's like, no, that, that goofy head didn't you hear my call. Like, I yelled several times. Oh, you're done. I got 99. You can just die. No, that's not the heart of the Father. He's willing to leave the 99 to go after one. And thank God he does, because if he didn't, we would be all still in our sins without hope. He chased after you and pursued you. Jesus, and this may sound weird, but that's okay. Jesus is God's great wind. Jesus is God's great storm in response to your running and rebellion. It's his gracious intervention to save you from yourself. Jesus is God's great fish to save you from death. I love it. I love that God gives us an entire book <laughs> to show us his love for fugitives, for men and women who rebel and run away from God. 
We all run. God always, always pursues. So I got one question. One question I just want to encourage, no matter where you're at spiritually, right? And I think this is the question that, that this whole chapter like jumps off the page and makes us ask. And that is this, are you running? And more specifically, maybe that's too broad for you, where in your life are you saying no to God? That's running. Where in your life are you saying, I'm, I'm good here, but no, 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 don't you touch. Where in your life is the word of God, the grace of God by his word coming and penetrating in you and saying, look, here, here it is. Here it is. You need to let go of this. You need to be open-handed about this. You need to repent of this. You need to confess this. Where in your life are you saying no?